Welcome to today's HeanCast, where we're talking about the importance of liver health and looking after our livers before and after gene therapy for haemophilia and for the other bleeding disorders that will be coming at some point in the future, we hope. Graham, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about how you ended up being connected with the world of haemophilia? So I'm Professor Graham Foster. I'm the Professor of Hepatology at Queen Mary University of London in the East End of London. And I'm a consultant hepatologist at Bart's Health. I have a long interest in the management of chronic viral hepatitis, particularly hepatitis C. And of course, that's led to me being heavily involved in managing patients with haemophilia who also sadly have been infected with hepatitis C. And as a consequence of that, I became interested in liver disease in patients with clotting disorders. And that led to me getting involved in some of the analyses of the early clinical trials of these wonderful new gene therapy products, which is can also affect the liver. So I spent my life trying to get viruses out of the liver, and I'm going to spend my retirement trying to get viruses into the liver. So it's a lovely circuitous route that I've taken. Oh, that's quite amusing. Wearing my paediatric nurse hat, before we move into gene therapy, which obviously is only in adults, for me, I think having got over the hepatitis C issues of the past, we've always thought that liver health was no longer an issue in children with haemophilia. Should we still be worrying about their liver health? I think we should. I think what we're starting to see is an increase in childhood liver disease due to poor lifestyles. And the incidence of obesity in children is growing at a fairly alarming rate. We're seeing more sedentary lifestyles, more poor diet. And in some studies, up to double figures percent of children have significant fatty liver disease at a very young age. Now, that's not an immediate cause for concern, but if your liver is starting to get damaged in childhood, you are likely to get accelerated disease as you age. And that then starts to reduce your therapeutic options. And whatever therapy you administer to people, your liver is going to get involved, whether it's metabolizing the drugs, whether it's producing the drugs, as in gene therapy. So the more robust your liver is, the better you are to tolerate whatever we throw at you in the future. And of course, I think the current gene therapies are by any means the end of the road for patients with haemophilia. I suspect we're going to come up with all sorts of innovative new solutions. Most of those will involve the liver in some way. I think that if we are not very careful, we will end up with a population of slightly obese, cirrhotic people in their 40s and 50s because we've mismanaged their childhoods. And I think that's a slightly frightening aspect of the future of healthcare beyond the haemophilia community. So I'm afraid having haemophilia doesn't make you exempt. And I do think there is a tendency, dare I say, to spoil children who have chronic diseases. And spoiling children means giving them what they want to eat rather than what's good for them to eat. So we need to be aware of it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that a whole fatty liver issue is a concern for all of us in the community, whether we have a long term condition or not. It's something we should all be worrying about. So why is the liver important in haemophilia gene therapy? The main target of haemophilia gene therapy, of course, is the hepatocyte. So the vectors that we use at the moment are targeted at the liver. There's a lot of good reasons for that, not the least being the liver is accessible. It's a site of production of large numbers of clotting factors. And gene therapy in the liver has a fairly good track record in that the delivery systems are now quite sophisticated. We have liver-specific receptors. We have liver-specific promoters. So we can be pretty targeted in our approach. 
the challenge, of course, is that we're sticking things into an organ and it doesn't like it. And it's no great surprise that when you put a virus into a liver, the natural tendency of both the hepatocyte with the innate immune response is to get it out. And the natural response of our immune system is to identify this foreign particle and try and get rid of it. And that inevitably leads to some degree of liver damage. And that, of course, is a perfectly healthy, perfectly natural response. But in this situation, we want to subvert it. So I'm afraid liver health is going to become a very popular topic in the haemophilia community. And I think if we're not very careful, it will become a rate limiting step for patients who are eligible for gene therapy. Because if we're going to be taking a very badly damaged liver and damaging it further, then that may not be a wise thing to do. And we may find that we have to restrict treatment options to people with damaged livers. And that means thinking about protecting the liver 10, 15, 20 years before you're going to throw the gene therapy out. So I've heard you, I think, speak about this before, but is one of the ways that we should be looking at liver health actually doing things that are a little bit more invasive than just their liver function tests? Yes, the liver function tests, I'm afraid, are a misnomer. They don't measure liver function at all. In fact, some of them don't even measure the liver. They're influenced by all sorts of things. So the bilirubin is influenced by hemolysis. A lot of patients with clotting disorders have occult bleeds, minor bleeds that lead to hemolysis. The bilirubin drifts up a little bit. Uh, a bit of exercise can raise your AST, etc. So they're not liver specific. Sadly, they don't measure what is for me the most important aspect of liver health, which is the amount of liver scarring. So when you damage your liver, hepatocytes die, they release ALT and AST, the transaminases, which are the hallmarks of liver function tests. The dying hepatocytes then are recovered, they're replaced, and in a healthy liver, they're replaced by healthy cells. So you could have quite a good going hepatitis. You could have hepatitis A, for example, which is transient, have an ALT of 5,000, you'd feel pretty lousy, but you'll recover completely your liver will heal and there'll be no damage. But what worries me as a hepatologist is when those dying hepatocytes cause scar formation, and that scar formation then leads to liver persistent damage, and that persistent damage goes on to cirrhosis. And once you have cirrhosis, then you're going to get into trouble, unfortunately. So we're very bad at measuring fibrosis in the liver. And the only way to do it is to use something other than blood tests. You can use a liver biopsy, and for many years, I've argued the only good liver was one with a needle in it. It's becoming less and less popular with patients. And I think for people with haemophilia, they quite rightly don't want to take the very small but very real risk of a bleed from a liver biopsy. So we've now got quite a few creative non-invasive techniques. The best technique, I think, for looking at liver health in patients with clotting disorders have got to be the mechanical means. And we can measure fibrosis mechanically with scans. So an MRI scan, there are specific MRI scans that will look at liver fibrosis. They're not your normal scan, unfortunately. Or we can use a fibro scan. And a fibro scan is essentially a modified ultrasound machine. It sends a beam of sound into the liver, measures how quickly it comes back, and that tells you how stiff your liver is. For those with an interest, it was developed by the French who used it initially, I gather, to assess the ripeness of their cheese. But being creative people, they very quickly worked out that it had other uses. They probably make more money doing it for cheese than patients. I'm afraid. <laughs> so both of those are 
acceptable tests. I think a fibre scan is a very cheap, readily available test. There's a whole battery of blood tests that will assess liver health. The problem with those blood tests is they were designed and normalised for healthy people. They rely on blood markers that can be naturally deranged in patients with clotting disorder. So the fibro test relies on bilirubin. And as I've just mentioned, the bilirubin can be artificially raised in patients with haemophilia. The ELF test looks at tissue metalloproteinases, and they unfortunately are present not just in the liver, but also in bones, collagen, etc. So people with joint damage and broken bones can have an artificially high ELF test. So the specificity of these non-invasive markers of liver function haven't been validated in patients with haemophilia. I suspect the normal ranges will need to be changed, but I'd be very nervous about using them at this stage. And I think to assess liver fibrosis, we need to go either to a biopsy, which I suspect is not going to be feasible, or to the non-invasive tests such as a fibroscan. And I'm a great believer in fibroscan. It's quick, it's easy, very acceptable to patients. It's a familiar process having an ultrasound scan, and it's very easy to do. So I think you just said that it was acceptable, but also accessible. Is it really that each hospital has a fibroscan, or do you need to go to some specialist liver centre? The distribution of fibroscans is increasing rapid. I couldn't tell you how many fibroscans there are in existence, but certainly in the hepatitis C world, we have 25 networks around the country. Most of them have two to three fibroscans. When we started the hepatitis C program, there were 22 networks, and we gave them each a fibroscan. So there's at least 20, and most of them have double, treble, quadruple that number. So I think any reputable haemophilia centre will know where to find a fibroscan. So I think they are relatively easily accessible, although I accept there may be parts of the country where it's just a little tricky. And then if we suddenly decide that we think gene therapy is the way forward for all people with bleeding disorders, not just haemophilia, because other gene therapies are coming, and we want to do all of this pre-treatment monitoring, yet alone the post-treatment monitoring, are we setting ourselves up to fail by not being able to do that? Or is it that there are different tests coming that you think we should be using that we don't currently? No, I think we can do the pretreatment workup in the sort of volumes. If we think about hepatitis B, hepatitis C, we have 10,000 patients with hepatitis B on our books who get a fairly regular fibro scan. We have a couple of thousand hepatitis C patients. So the volume of patients with clotting disorders is minuscule. If we talk about fatty liver disease, where we started the discussion, some people are questioning whether 20, 30% of the population over the age of 50 have got fatty liver disease. So I think the number of patients we're talking about with clotting disorders pales into insignificance between the lifestyle choices. The genetic disorders, I think, are going to be a very small contribution to workload. And I think that, in, in my view, we should not start by being pragmatic. We should start by putting out there, this is what we need to do it properly, and then argue about how we're going to deliver it. I think to start by saying let's compromise is probably the wrong thing to do. And obviously one of the big lifestyle choices for people with haemophilia going through gene therapy clinical trials at the moment is the avoidance of alcohol. I guess for those that have chosen to go into a clinical trial, that's something that they've thought about and that they are willing to do. I'm not quite so sure that the whole of the haemophilia population <laughs> will say, I'm not going to drink anything for the next six months. Thanks very much. Do you think alcohol is such a naughty thing that we should be advocating that they don't drink 
I think what we should be doing is informing people about the risks and leaving people to make intelligent choices. And I think we should get away from this slightly paternalistic approach of thou shalt and start getting people engaged in the process. The data on alcohol is really fairly straightforward that you don't get liver disease until you're drinking fairly large amounts. So the chance of getting cirrhosis if you drink less than 40 units of alcohol a week is really pretty low. Most of my patients with alcoholic liver disease are double, even treble that. So if you're drinking 20 to 40 units of alcohol a week, your chance of liver disease is very low indeed. Not nil, but low. What we do know, though, is that as you drink, your rate of cancers increases, not just cancers of the liver, but cancers of the pancreas, cancers of the esophagus, a general pre-malignant process is started by drinking excessively. And the cutoff for that is around 14 units. And that's why the national guidance suggests that people should drink less than 14 units a week. It's not based on liver disease. It's based on cancer and cardiovascular risk. So I think for patients with haemophilia, they have two important factors to consider. The first is that if they are going to undertake gene therapy or anything that starts damaging the liver, that might start to increase their risk of liver cancer. We haven't seen cancers associated with gene therapy, but there is a theoretical risk. So do you want to be drinking a level of alcohol that will potentially take a theoretical risk and make it a little more likely? And that's something to consider on a case-by-case basis. The second feature, of course, is that once you start drinking your two to three bottles of wine a week, it's surprising how quickly it drifts into the four to five. (laughs) And alcohol is addictive and it's easy to get addicted. It's also easy for it to become a social prop that leads to you to drink reasonable amounts of alcohol for five days a week instead of at weekends. So you need to start thinking fairly carefully about what level of risk you're prepared to take. And I speak as someone who's very fond of a good glass of wine, thank you very much, but I don't drink except at weekends and I won't drink during the week. And I think what we need to do is engage with people at a sensible level. The challenge I think with the government guidelines are that they haven't been terribly well explained and everyone knows that they've been drinking for years and they haven't got cirrhosis and their friends haven't got cirrhosis and they think 14 units a week is far too low and they're right but what we haven't done a good job at explaining is the reason we've picked a low level of alcohol is because the cancer rate goes up even at very low levels so it's your risk of cancer that's the concern not your risk at cirrhosis at low levels medium levels start to increase your risk of liver cirrhosis. And of course, once you get to high levels, then all sorts of wheels start to come off. Great. So as we've shifted into gene therapy, I wondered if you would give us an idea as a hepatologist of your concern about the transaminitis that people get after gene therapy, where we as haemophilia treaters get very twitchy. I know you're not quite so twitchy about it, but whether you think that is something as gene therapy comes into clinical care rather than trials, something we need to engage with our hepatology colleagues with, or this is something we can manage by ourselves? I think we should always be engaging with hepatology (laughs) colleagues because we're always keen to to assist. And I think it's always helpful to get a second view as people start to, to learn the nuances of liver inflammation. From a practical level, I don't get out of bed for an ALT that's less than a few thousand because (laughs) ALT is a marker of liver function. It tells you there are hepatocytes there. So if someone gets an acute hepatitis A, their ALT will go up to four or 5,000. 
provided their clotting's okay, provided their bilirubin's okay, I'm not too worried about that. It'll settle, the lipid will recover. I'm paradoxically much more worried about the ALT that's three, 400 in someone who's had a big batch of paracetamol and has got an INR that's drifting off and a bilirubin that's drifting off because they've got no hepatocytes left. And I think the way to look at ALT is to think what happens if I take your liver out. The answer is you have no liver function, but you have zero ALT. Your ALT is normal. So you need to look at ALT in the context of everything else that's going on. The sort of levels we've seen so far in gene therapy are ALTs of a few hundred with normal synthetic function, so normal clotting, normal bilirubin. And in that context, an ALT of a couple of hundred is of no significance to me in the short term. If that stops, your liver will recover. There'll be no long-term damage. The concerns that we have, I think, are threefold. The first concern is that if that grumbling transaminase continues for many years, that can lead to long-term scarring and long-term damage. So it's the low-level ALT of 100, 150 over years that will cause damage. The second is, of course, that as we discussed earlier, we may be putting these gene therapies into quite badly damaged livers. We may have people who have approaching cirrhosis from past hepatitis C, from past fatty liver disease, from current alcohol abuse. And we're then taking someone who's on the cusp of significant liver problems and kicking them over the edge. So there is a concern about what level of pre-existing liver damage. And the final feature, of course, is that if we're killing off the hepatocytes that have received the gene therapy, then we may be starting to damage the efficacy of the treatment. So we've put a lot of effort getting these gene therapy products into the liver cell, and now we're allowing the body's natural defenses to kick them out. So I think we need to think about what the pre-existing liver status is. And if it's healthy, then we can tolerate some degree of inflammation. We need to think about what level of risk the patient is willing to take. And we need to think about how we protect the gene therapy insert, as well as the patient's general health. Great, thanks. So what we've heard from some people with haemophilia who've gone through gene therapy is the burden that they get from the current immune suppression that we're using. So you know, high dose steroids or steroids for a long period of time. And I know I've heard you talk about whether prednisolone would be the best treatment of immune, for immune suppression in this situation. But given that that's what we have to do at the moment, do you think we could be better at managing that for patients now? Or if you could do anything you wanted, is there something else that you would do differently that wasn't just steroids? I, I think our knee-jerk response to the transaminitis has uh, been non-evidence-based. And I think it's more anecdote and hearsay than firm evidence. I think if you look carefully at the literature, it's fairly clear that there are some people who get a transaminitis, a fall in gene therapy expression, and when you give them steroids, that is rescued. And fairly clearly for those people, steroids are a good thing or some form of immunosuppression. But there's a cohort of people where there doesn't seem to be a good correlation and the factor disappears regardless of steroids or the ALT rises, it isn't aborted by steroids and the factor level remains high. So I think we need to think a little bit more about individualizing. I'm not convinced that prednisolone is necessarily the optimal treatment. We use a lot of budesonide in our patients with autoimmune hepatitis. That's a liver-specific steroid. It does have some systemic effects, but relatively small because it's metabolized quickly in the liver. 
And it's pretty effective in autoimmune hepatitis, probably as good as steroids. So I think there are attractive alternatives. My own personal view is that we do need to set up a proper clinical trial. And I think the trial that I would like to see is a comparison of steroids versus something else. And colleagues have argued for trichrolimus, and I can see the attractions of that. Colleagues have argued for budesonide, and I can see the attraction of that. And I think when we're sitting here saying we don't know what to do, that's the time to do a trial. I'm going to be slightly contentious and say that I would like that clinical trial to involve liver biopsies. And I would argue that doing a protocol liver biopsy at six to eight weeks in everybody will allow us to get the information about what is going on, and that will allow informed treatment choices. I rather suspect that we will be able to segregate patients into those with steroid responsive and those with non-responsive. And if we can understand that, get a serum biomarker that will tell us what's going on, that may be a much better way of doing it. There are, of course, more modern ways of doing liver biopsies than the traditional large needle thrust in through the skin. We can now do suction biopsies. We use fine needle aspirates. So you put essentially a small, a white or a green needle in, suck hard, pull out a few cells, and the patient goes home an hour or two later. Much less risk of bleeding, much less invasive. It doesn't give you quite the same level of information. It doesn't give you information about liver architecture, but it gives you cells to look at and inflammatory infiltrates. So my personal view is that we should stop guessing and start learning let's do a few liver biopsies, let's get patients to assist us in understanding the process, and then let's get a bit scientific about it rather than going on with what is our best guess. And everyone's got their own best guess. So I think what I'm hearing, not just from you, but from other people talking about gene therapy, is that there are things we definitely know, there are things that are definite no-go areas, and then there's this whole grey area in the middle of this might happen, that might happen, this might be a good idea, this might not. How do we embrace that ignorance of where we are right now in a way that we can support people with haemophilia in making that decision about whether they want to go for gene therapy? I think we have to talk to patients as individuals and we have to explain possible risks and possible benefits. And patients are remarkably sophisticated in working out what's right for them at what stage in their life. And what a young man with a career is willing to risk may be very different to what a slightly elderly man whose primary desire is to keep his joints okay so he can run around with the grandchildren for a few more years. And I think we have to respect that people will have different appetites for risk, different views, and all we can do is make sure that they're well informed. I think one of the lessons we've learned from the effective blood inquiry and from past poor quality practices is that patients do not like to be told. They don't like to be handed over back to the plotting fact and told this is the right thing for them. They want to be involved in the decision-making. So I think provided we are transparent and provided we explain the lack of clarity that we have at the moment, then I should think we should allow patients to make their own choices. And I don't... A number of colleagues are starting to put out very strict guidelines on who should and shouldn't get gene therapy. Patients with psoriasis mustn't be considered. I think must be the very strong word here. And I think patients have a right to be consulted. If you have cirrhosis and you're coming to the end of your joint life, you're facing life in a wheelchair, actually that two or three years of perhaps better quality joint life might be worth taking the risk of gene therapy in a liver with cirrhosis. You might be willing to make that choice. 
And that's your choice to make. And it's our choice to support people through that. So I think it's information sharing. I appreciate that it's very difficult when patients don't get the hard facts. And it's very frustrating when a patient leaves the clinic saying, you didn't really tell me anything. Actually, that's because I don't know anything. But I think we just have to be transparent and honest and do the best we can to convey the uncertainty. And so here's a totally hypothetical question because nobody's ever suggested that we can even do this. But from a hepatology perspective, if a patient had gene therapy now and it worked for the next five years and then it didn't work anymore because they lost the vector or they lost their levels went from being yeah. 20 to two. And then there was the possibility that they could undergo gene therapy again back into the liver. Would you as a hepatologist recommend different viruses, different vectors going into livers, or is it? A, would it be safer in inverted commas to do it once and once only? I think what we know at the moment is that part of the liver damage is immune-mediated. And given that we have an immune memory, it seems to me that if you tried again with exactly the same gene therapy, you would be likely to get a more profound immune response and it would be less likely to be effective. And that, of course, is hypothetical, but it seems to be sensible not to play with the immune memory. So I would be reluctant to use same again. But if your liver has recovered from the first insult, if you have a fibre scan that's acceptable, the patient's willing to take the risk, I see no reason at all why you shouldn't use perhaps a different serotype of an adeno-associated vector or a completely different gene therapy vector. So I wouldn't have concerns about a second insult to the liver. But I would have concerns about putting exactly the same thing in again and hoping the immune system had forgotten it had seen it. Immune systems don't work that way. They do remember, and I suspect they would abreact. Yeah, I think I agree with you. And as I said, totally hypothetical. I don't think anybody's even thinking about doing something quite so strange. So I think I have no more questions. Clearly, our livers are very important, and I might take slightly better care of mine now, perhaps one less gin and tonic <laughs> rather than one less bottle of wine a week. Is there anything else you would like to spread to the haemophilia community of treaters and people with bleeding disorders about their livers? No, I think the message for me is very much talk to your friendly hepatologist. You may find it a productive discussion for both sides. Let's keep the questions coming and let's work collectively to firm up some of the unknowns and turn them into knowns. These are potentially game-changing treatments and I would be very sad if we lost the opportunity to develop them because we were frightened of hypothetical long-term safety concerns. I think patients are going to benefit from this in the long term. It's just selecting the right patients for the treatment at the moment and we can manage their livers. We can fix them. <laughs> Graham, thank you for that. I always love talking with you and listening to you speaking. You're always very inspiring. It's making me think about my own liver health and I don't have a bleeding disorder. So well done on that. And we've heard from both patients and other healthcare professionals that they also have concerns about liver health. And so we made an animation which you can find on the HemeNet YouTube channel. <laughs>